Hello, this is James Grunvig with Unrestricted Warfare, my show on Decentralized.meet. I'm here with a very special guest who's going to tell his life story. His middle name is Bishop, and I'm going to call him Bishop going forward because it, it talks about, you know, Bishop in the, in the chess pieces. There's a strategy in life. There is a long walk that people take. His story is un more universal than you believe. It is going to be fascinating. This is just the first in a probably series of several shows to go through the different things and different uh, aspects, challenges, and finding himself is a very important story for all of you out there. Um, but let me begin with a video because, as always, not only do we live our individual lives, we, we are, we're part of this connected world, and this world is going bonkers. No question about that. Not everything is what it seems. I've been reporting on that for four years. Let's play the beginning of this very important video on the fake news, the fake vaccine safety, and governments being exposed for what they are out of Massachusetts. Welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, it's not that far, Massachusetts, hour and a half. So <laughs> I plan on moving here, uh, making New Hampshire my home. I plan on dying here. About 20 years in Connecticut where I grew up and then about 40 years here. So I know time is short, let me get to a few things. Before I speak about what I wanted to speak about, let me address uh, the epidemiological aspect that was uh, given testimony a few minutes ago. So when somebody says no vaxes aren't human trialed, okay, some were trialed on the most healthy people and there were a few people. What he's not telling you is, were they trialed on babies? How do we know they're safe for babies? Were they trialed on pregnant women? Were they trialed on people with clotting disorders, Alzheimer's, dementia? I'm gonna get into some data that, that will tell you some um, numbers on those in Massachusetts. Also, um, flu and COVID differences. He said, oh, there's no differences between the trials. Well, then what is EUA for? Emergency use authorization. Why did it skip all the trials? So there are differences. So there's a disingenuous testimony that was given prior to me. I think you should consider. <clears throat> okay, so I'm a, I'm a systems engineer. Um, my made my career in putting large contracts together. So I understand various systems, not just engineering. So I have an MBA also. Uh, I put together the MK6LE, that's the Mark VI um, guidance control system for the Polaris nuclear missile. It's about a billion dollars that came from that deal. I was told not to do it, I did it anyway. And um, they pulled together uh, Raytheon General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Honeywell and the prime contractor with whom I negotiated Draper Laboratory in Cambridge, Mass. The reason why I can understand the statistical methods that are used is because I used to use it against people in winning contracts. And the methods that, that are being used to tell you that these are safe and effective are, well, I, I was born in Hartford, so let me just quote somebody from Hartford, uh, or at least his house is there, uh, Samuel Clemens. There, there are three kinds of lies lies, damned lies, and statistics. And they're, they're fooling everybody with all these. Not everybody, you know, they won't fool me. Um, so here's some real data that I got from Massachusetts. I have 1 million unredacted death certificates, about 500,000 from Massachusetts, 420,000 from Minnesota, and other, uh, the balance comes from Vermont. I'll just talk about Massachusetts for a minute. As far as safe and effective goes, I traverse the hierarchy of data and evidence from the individual case, that's a single death certificate, 
all the way up through all cause, which is the highest level of hierarchy. So all cause deaths, yes, they were up uh, quite a bit in Massachusetts in 2020, <clears throat> but they were also up in 21 and 22. All of a sudden, the causes of death that were causing the excess death shifted from a, a respiratory seasonal virus. So you have pneumonia deaths, ARDS, COPD. They were up in 2020. Well, what happened on a year boundary when the vaccines were introduced? Everything shifted to blood and circulatory. Blood and circulatory deaths all of a sudden started going up. They didn't go up when COVID was around in 2020. They all of a sudden started going up in 2021. Acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, thrombocytopenia, cardiac arrhythmia, cardiac arrest, pulmonary embolism, and I can tell you about the individual cases. Now, I could play an entire 14-minute video, but I don't need to. I'm going to have a link to that entire video on this show, so you can go watch it yourself. But why is this important? Well, last night I had uh, Dr. Robert Young with the, a statistician, a researcher out of Norway, Anders Brunstad, and what do they cover? They covered excess deaths, not only in the United States, but around the world, in Norway, in Denmark, United Kingdom, all over. And it all points and backs up to this gentleman's testimony. And not only did Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Wayne, not only did he give that statistic on liars, right? He also say, said, figures don't lie, but liars figure, right? And we, we've been gaslit and lied to and propagandized for the last four years. There is no virus, number one. It's been a complete psyop. Number two... They've been poisonous toxins, so that was some of the sickness in the lungs. But more importantly, they were using EMF, 5G. And 5G rolled out at the end of 2019 into 2020 around the world, and people were getting sick from that because they had never been exposed to that kind of radiation. That was the sickness. Just letting you know, so go watch that show. We'll get with Bishop in a second. I'm going to go through a PowerPoint, read his brief file, and then we'll bring him right on. So this is uh, episode 30, Bishop's early game strategy. So yes, Bishop is uh, his middle name. It's also uh, a old Latin word. It talks about overseer. And overseer in a game of chess is there's an early and mid-game strategy because bishops move on a diagonal to take down different chess pieces. Very important. So we're going to get into the early game strategy or the early part of Bishop's life on this show today. Uh, this is yours truly, James Grubbig. Every other day, Unrestricted Warfare or Beyond the Bible. You can find us in rumble.com, Red Pill Project. I'm going to have my own uh, Unrestricted Warfare website. Uh, when it launches, I will let you know, and we're going to have other things going on. So this is, of course, the Red Sea. We got from U.S. Central Command report this morning that a U.S. container ship was struck last night with, with uh, missiles from the Houthi tribe out of Yemen, right? These Iranian-made missiles. Obviously, they, they must have trained the Houthi or whatever, and they were able to strike a container ship, U.S.-owned. And so now this war clearly has expanded. I guess they're trying to poke the United States and the Biden regime in particular to get them to expand a war beyond Israel. That is what this looks like to me. This is from Zero Hedge, right? And this is the image they used for this article today. But this is a warn all of us. Massive money printing as debt soars. 
So the debt soaring, the massive money printing leads to what? Inflation. And they want to lower lower the interest rates six times this year. Oh, I find all of that interesting. Is that a strategy? It's not a strategy. That is a way to crash the banking system, especially with the BRICS nation, right? You're going to get rid of the petrodollar completely, U.S. petrodollar. And we're going to have some kind of financial cataclysm, in my opinion, at some point this year. And I think much sooner rather than later, because this is where it's all heading. So I was introduced to a good friend, to Bishop, and he's got a very unique background. He was born and raised in Atlantic City. That's AC. He was a very young athlete, uh, pretty close to being a professional. And professional athletes are elite athletes. He was a surfer. Pretty interesting, right? He's a collector of Air Jordans from 1987. So that also makes him interesting because there is a story to it. He was in law enforcement for many, many years. In, in fact, very distinguished, award-winning uh, law enforcement. He'll tell that career probably in a different show today. And he's done what a lot of people who've gone through different uh, challenges and troubles in life, you have the, the walk through the valley, right? You don't learn anything on top of the mountain. You learn things walking through the valley, including myself. And he converted from his religion of Judaism into being converted to Jesus Christ's teachings. He's not yet baptized, but he intends to do it at some point in life. But the more important thing is finding yourself and separating your, your human spirit from your human flesh and realizing the importance of God's and Jesus Christ's teaching. That is important to me and to you. And here we are. Bishop, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, James. That was a very nice introduction. Pleasure to meet you. Uh, I, I I definitely intrigued by your story. I think it's important for people because we all we all learn life lessons. You know, I I think you have to let children be children, scrape their knees, get their bruises, and even adults, same thing. I mean, if we go on the wrong path, we need our past corrected, corrected, and sometimes it takes relationship with people close to you, and sometimes it takes outside outsiders to do it whatever that means. But talk about your early life in Atlantic City and your your athleticism in high school. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, um, 1973, May 15th. And uh, my mother, maiden name, Karen Bishop, and my father, Irving Ginsburg. Um Grew up in Atlantic City. We had a family lineage of business in Atlantic City, three casinos, which was the first casino in Atlantic City was resorts. Um, my mother was a housekeeper and, you know, stay-at-home mom and took care of me and my sister. And my father was a Wharton School graduate and um, was very polished businessman in Atlantic City. Um surrounded himself with a lot of, you know, like-minded people. And um, actually, his, his one of his close friends, Stephen Persky, actually wrote the law to bring Atlantic City, the resorts to Atlantic City. So, um, you know, he's very well connected. And um, from there, you know, I uh, went to middle school. Once my dad was able to, you know, make enough money, we moved to Seacon Island consists of Atlantic City, Ventnor, Margate, and Longport. So we moved down to Margate. Um, and that's where I kind of was one house from, you know, I was a block away from the beach. Um, 
on the other side of Atlantic Avenue, which runs parallel between Epsigan Island. And um, that's where I kind of got involved in, in surfing. My, uh, you know, my cousin, Mark Neustadter was um, on the cover of Surfer Magazine. He, you know, lived in California. He was the first independent rep in the action sports industry. And he was always around the house and Mark was a character and loved the ocean still does the guy walks on water and passed this gift to me at a very young age. Um, so I think, you know, my parents were pretty hesitant on buying me a fiberglass surfboard when I was, uh, eight. So they bought me this styrofoam board. And I remember, you know, we grew up on Quincy Avenue and, um, you know, there was a a crew of eclectic people, Margo, including that was my neighbor, lived across the street. And um, I remember, you know, the first time I put this board in the water because the boards aren't manufactured like they are today. It was basically like riding like an igloo cooler. And <clears throat> so once the water hit the board, it weighed like 10% more than it did the first time I, you know, pulled it down the street to go surfing with Mark. And um you know, from that day forward, I had to drag it. So I remember, you know, having to pass, you know, the kids that, that had the boards and watch me, you know, learning this whole process, this like gift that I had been given. I really could really barely paddle. I couldn't duck dive the thing. It weighed, you know, way more than it did the first time. And so by the end of the summer, instead of the nose of the board being round, it was like one side of it had like a triangle because I could hardly pick this thing up. And, um, you know, it taught me that from a very early age that, um, you know, the ocean is, is something to be humbled by and that uh, it took a lot of practice to be able to learn that art form. Um and I'm, I'm grateful for, for Mark and him, you know, showing me, uh, giving a part of himself to me because it's still part of my life today. Although I haven't been in the water in quite some time, um, you know, surfing for me has always been a, you know, they say if we're made up of energy, right, James? And for me, yeah. surfing's always been this ground that's, allowed me to step away from what's happening in this worldly clamor that we live in. And, and it's one of the only sports that really forces you to operate in the present. And it gives you a different medium every time that you choose to turn and paddle and catch a wave. So um, it became a huge part of my DNA. And uh, we can talk about later, like how it almost became my church and a way for me to escape you know, a lot of the things that I'll tell you later in my story. Yep. And um, so, you know, um, the only other kid that, that I surfed with was uh, his name's Chris Polk. And um, he's, you know, one of Hollywood's greatest red carpet entertainment photographers. And I remember, you know, going over Chris's house, you know, Dick had uh, his father, Richard Polk. We used to call him Dick Polk. He, uh, had built this rack for us to store our surfboards. So we did a lot of surfing on Harding Avenue. And um, Chris's father was, I don't know, I think he was the chief of police. Don't, don't quote me on that in Margie. Okay. And, um, but Chris's father 
you know, his hobby was photography. So he had, at that time, there was no digital photography. He was shooting all black and white photography. And we would like, you know, he would take these photos of us and then he would show us how to develop them in his dark room that he built in the house. And, you know, and, and, and people today, people today are like, well, what's the dark room? I mean, like kids today in particular, right? Because right? right. if you live in the digital age, right. you got in instantaneous photographs. Yeah. yeah, everything swipe, swipe right, swipe left, you know? Yep. And uh, these are the days where you actually had to walk outside your house and, and play capture the flag and actually interact with humans. Touch you know, so, all that. Yep. Yeah. I did it. <laughs> Kick the can, all of it. So, um, you know, growing up and, and literally like part of my escape was at, at Chris's house. And um, we used to. God, go down in these archaic wetsuits. I think the first wetsuit I had was a rip curl wetsuit that Mark had given me. If anybody doesn't know about rip curl, they're an Australian-based Turkey company. They were like one of the first pre pre, you know, everybody wearing dive suits. Yeah, let right? me yeah, let me interject here for the audience because not everyone lives up northeast. I live. I was born and raised in New York. I actually spent uh, six summers out. Long Beach Island on New Jersey Shore. So, I, and I've been to Margate, I've been Atlantic City, I've been all those places. Swimming in your bathing suit, basically June, July, and August. If you if if you're on a surfboard before that, before June, or after after you know Labor Day weekend, September, you're in a wetsuit. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So to parlay off of that, James, I mean, you know, the pioneers of of surfing on the East Coast. You know, um, I mean. You know, Duke brought the first place that he brought surfing besides Hawaii was to Atlantic City. So in that infantile pioneering stage of surfing, they, guys were wearing dive suits. It was like archaic. You know, it's not like the neoprene today or the geoprene where you can, you know, put, you know, it weighs the same amount. The wetsuit weighs the same amount that it would weigh in the water out of the water. So, you know, surfing in Atlantic City and surfing on the East Coast, there's, you know, you needed every single millimeter of rubber from, you know, a spring suit, a two millimeter, all the way through, you know, sometimes a six millimeter wetsuit in the wintertime when you're dealing with, you know, 35 degree weather, you know, the rain blowing sideways, the snow blowing sideways, and then the water being 34 degrees. So it's a different animal. And like, I didn't think about all that when I first started, you know, it was just this like, oh my God, I feel like <clears throat> I can... I have this escape and I have this art form and I have this like ability to get out of a lot of the chaos that was happening in the house at that time. And, you know, find a whole crew of people that, you know, love to surf as much as I did, even though I was learning because I started at such a young age. And um, I think about that today. And uh, I mean, some of the greatest group of people I ever met, you know, because I remember going down the street of Harding Avenue and Chris's father taking pictures of this guy, Dean Randazzo. Nobody knew who Dean was. You know what I mean? At that point, we knew that yep. he was like this amazing surfer. But as a kid and just watching how he just just effortlessly was able to do things that most people couldn't even think about doing. And then the fact that he was able to make it to the ASP, which is the Association of Surfing Professionals, top 40, one of the only guys to come out of the East Coast to make it to that level to surf, you know, with the level of surfers, you know, Kelly Slater, 
Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, but to travel and make the world tour and um, kind of be part of that, you know, there was always something cool. And I, you know, I had a conversation with Chris the other day about photography and there's something cool being able to capture a moment and then give that moment to somebody else. And I feel that that's, you know, I'm really, really grateful, James, for being able to be able to start to tell my story, you know, because there is something special when you capture something. It's, it's a universal language that didn't exist 200 years ago. Absolutely. You, no matter what language you speak, if you showed a picture of an animal or something, people from all the world can relate to it. Language or culture doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know. We we did that. We did that a lot. We did that every weekend. Chris's father was on the beat at, you know, the Eastern Surfing, you know, NSSA contest and the ESA contest and the Vendor Pier contest. Took us to, you know, surf contests at a young age. And I got to meet all these guys that were like involved. You know, you didn't have to go play soccer. You didn't have to go play basketball. And people rightfully so do their sports. But it was like this whole community of people that were on the beach at five 30 in the morning, watching the sun come up and supporting their kids in, in this alternative sport, you know? So, um, and it was really cool to see how these guys that were like levels ahead of where I was were, you know, it was like they would catch waves and then they would catch other waves and they would come in and they would talk to Chris's father and Chris's father would, talk about how he was able to capture that image for them. And then it would translate into a relationship and building, like eventually getting the print to the guy from the beach, not instantaneously. It was, it was time, you know, it took time from the time the photo was shot till the time that it was handed back. And um, I really saw how you could connect on many different levels. And, um, you know, I think that when I spoke to Chris to, to talk about our conversation, that's been his whole motive behind his whole entire business. And I think that that's, that he learned that at a very young age from his father, that there's something about giving something back to somebody. Okay. Um, And I think it parlays into my story and it, and it was resonated to me at a very early age that um, it's a selfless act. You know, yeah, the equipment costs money. I mean, Zeiss Prime lenses nowadays cost, you know, almost $100,000. But at that time, I learned very early that, like, it gave me a, a way to escape a lot of the things that were happening. And then I got to see how there was a community around it and that you could give back in so many different ways to that community. So it's part of my DNA, you know. Yeah, the I'm in Arizona. Go ahead. I'm in Arizona right now. I'm kind of far away from the ocean, but uh, you know, I'm looking forward to you know getting my tail kicked. You know, the next time I surf, James. So, and I actually talked about doing it with Justin, who introduced me to you. So, hopefully, we can make that happen soon. Yeah, well, my audience mostly knows I was born with a defective hip, so the last thing I could do on the planet was surf. I couldn't skateboard. I'm the only Norwegian who couldn't ski or skate well. That's life. But So God has given me that to do what I'm doing now, the last words, which is bring the truth on the, you know, being part of the great unveiling, right, on all of the lies of the matrix of the cabal of all of that. 
And it's very important to understand we we all are given diff different paths in life, but here we are and telling the truth and bringing out all of it is very important because we're here to wake up our brothers and sisters, even the ones who are vaccinated. We're not here to judge people. Everyone's been lied and coerced to. We're going we're to strip away all of that. We've been living inside corporation after corporation after corporation. So for instance, a few months ago, I had a, 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 a uh, messianic uh, rabbi named uh, Jason Ian is also a big researcher on the corporations. So sheriffs, I don't know if you know, know this, uh, Bishop, but sheriffs in the United States are not law enforcement executives. They are CEOs of the county corporation. That is what they are. They're, you know, and this is, you have to get into the super fine print to realize that the village is a corporation of incorporated, right, which is run by the town's corporation, the county's corporation, the state's corporation, the U.S. government at one time, the entire federal government was a corporation, but Trump dissolved that. And this is how the, the Vatican and the globalists have taken over the world to corporations, right? We're born with birth bonds. So this is all part of the process. I want to talk about you transitioning from surfing in your athleticism to, to your young teens where you had to go out and make money and then you wanted to buy certain items. And I think that is a great story because part of the hero's journey is what is to actually be defiant, not necessarily breaking the law, but being defiant to your parents, being defiant to authority. And I think this is very interesting transition. Go ahead, Bishop. I think in, you know, James, in a lot of ways, it kind of starts with surfing. You know, there's this counterculture that I was involved in, you know, and yep. it wasn't the norm. You know what I mean? And the guys that were, you know, there's a lot of unruly things that were going on down on the beach. You know what I mean? And we can leave that open to interpretation for the audience. But, um, you know, I, uh, I played basketball as well. You know, I've always been pretty well-rounded in sports. Um, I got involved because uh, early um, in martial arts and, you know, I, my athleticism, I practiced really hard at what it is that I was interested in. And I think that that's a key for me. You know, I put 110% effort into stuff that I really want to work on. And so at a really young age, um, you know, I was in love with basketball. I was Larry Bird. I had stock in the Celtics, actually. And, um, and Michael Jordan, you know, it was just, you know, every weekend – I would watch yep. basketball. I played basketball growing up, played in middle school, played um, in high school. It started as a point guard in high school. And, um, you know, neighbor put this lawnmower outside. And I don't know, it was just in the trash. And, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, what are you doing with the lawnmower? And he said, oh, it works. You know, it just doesn't have a blade. And, um, he said, you can have it. I just bought a new one. So here's this lawnmower. It doesn't have a bag on it. It doesn't have an edger. It doesn't have all the things that, like, when I see the guys showing up to mow our lawn, have. It's just this lawnmower. And uh, I needed to get the blade sharpened, so we kind of worked that angle. He knew somebody. I got the blade sharpened. And, um, you know, I started mowing my mom's lawn, and I realized quickly what a mess I was making. You know, not only did I have to mow the lawn, I didn't have an edger. So it looked like, you know, the hair that comes out of the, the bottom of the elf's, you know, Christmas suit, elf suit. So it was like, I didn't have an edger, had to rake up everything. 
and um, I was able to make some money. And I realized pretty early that like I could contribute, I could, you know, um, do something to try to have this entrepreneurial spirit. And um, so I took the lawnmower, I used to drag it around behind my bike, I used to knock on the neighbor's doors. And I would ask him, hey, listen, can I mow your lawn for $10? And I guess maybe like being this cute, I, I don't have any hair now, James, but at one point I had this like toehead bleach blonde hair. And, um, you know, people were receptive to it. You know, they <laughs> they let me mow their lawn. And um, I was able to go from like my lawn to the neighbor's lawn to four lawns to 10 lawns and you know, at, at one point I was able to, you know, save a hundred dollars. And this was like 1987. Yeah. And a hundred, hundred dollars was a good amount of money in the eighties. Just, just for everyone to kind of recall or for those right. who weren't born yet in 87. Right. So, um, you know, at that time, I think in the NBA, right. Everybody yep. had everybody's sneakers had to be the same color. Every, the uniforms had to match, and it was very uniform. Short shorts, and I remember like Michael Jordan just thinking like this guy is on another level. He just makes these professional athletes. He he definitely just for the, uh, for the audience. He was on another level. He didn't win his first NBA championship until a few years later. But you could see in the playoffs, he was just a different kind of player. Complete. He would win his win his six championships in the 1990s, just for posterity to stake. Yeah. So I mean, he just moved like on a whole nother level. And um, you know, when Nike signed a contract with him, they agreed that they were going to pay the fines because they were going to put this shoe out that changed the game. It was different. You know, he was different. He played yeah. different. He moves different. Um, you could see that he was going to be a goat. You know, arguably to this day, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And like, I agree. if you think about it, right? Michael Jordan missed more shots in his career than he made. So there's a lesson to be learned from a lot of different things. Sometimes greatness, what you see, um, takes time to curate because he didn't get into basketball until later in his life. And so I asked my mom, I had a hundred dollars, you know, I want to ride my bike down to Alexander's hip hop shop in Atlantic city. I don't know, buy these new Jordans that are coming out. And uh, I think at the time it was 1985. And she looked at me and she said, she kind of stopped for a minute so I could tell she was thinking, she said, you know, this will be good. They're going to either steal your bike, they're going to steal your money, or they're going to steal your shoes and your bike. And then you're not going to have any money to call me from a payphone to come pick you up. And I was like, okay, okay, listening to it, trying to be respectful. And I'm like, all right, so can I go? Because right now you're just talking about all the problem. Like, and I have the money, I'm going to pay for it. I want to go down there. I can write the check or you can give me the cash and I can write you the check. And she allowed me to go. So I did it, rode my bike down there and I wish she was right. You know, I mean, Lake city pre casinos was uh, a rough. different place. Yep. Rough. And, and even though resorts came to town, 
You know, the CRDA funding never allocated money back into the state directly. You know, back it did to the state. It never did to Atlantic City directly. You know, like if in the law, maybe it's at a point or two of what Atlantic City would become, that allocation of those tax dollars would be put back into Atlantic City. Maybe Atlantic City would be a different place, you know, because I know today Atlantic City still doesn't have a food store. And we can talk about that later in the interview. But like, so when I went up there, she was right. I'm like this towhead, bleach blonde kid that probably weighed 90 pounds at the time, riding my bike. And I was the only, you know, Caucasian males there. Yeah. Um, and she was right. There was breakdancing that was going on. There was kids outside rapping. Um, you know, there was guys that were buying full size runs of uptowns, which if you don't know, are Air Force Ones. And here I am waiting in line to get this Jordan, Jordan one, one of the first two releases. And what I learned from that whole thing was that, you know, it really wasn't about, you know, the color of your skin, your creed, your race, what it is you were into, like the whole culture, like just for kicks, like was about, and it still is, it's about the shoe. It's about the story behind the shoe. It's about, you know, the um, the companies seeing in these athletes the ability to, you know, use their talent and to make money off of it. You know what I mean? It was kind build, of everything. Build a brand which really right. wasn't there in the 70s, with the exception of maybe a mean Joe Green Pittsburgh Seals drinking Coca-Cola in the 70s. Other than that, I don't remember. They, but they were building brands, especially Nike, in the mid-80s, right? Just do it with Bo Jackson, with Michael Jordan. It it was a, a new evolution of American uh, brand building, right? Where, where on Madison Avenue, where they build brands is actually, well, now we're going to turn athletes into the brands themselves. It was fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, because the NBA, I mean, people were wearing Reebok and, um, I mean, they, they, you know, Michael Jordan was the first athlete to, to be backed by, you know, to put Nike in the basketball game. And it was it, it took a while um, for them to curate that deal. So as a kid and watching it, you would think, wow, you know, I mean, I didn't know all that. I didn't know that until recently or till you know, you, you know, the story of his shoe deal, but, um, but, but you were somehow intuitively wise enough to buy a whole collection of this over time. Didn't yeah. You? Well, what I, what I did was, so I went up there and, and, you know, not to be long winded, I ended up getting, you know, one of the first shoes, which was the band, you know, it was the shoe that created all the controversy. It was the shoes where after every game, Nike was paying his fines. And, um, I kept that shoe. I think I wore it once. And then I went back, every single month for the releases until i had every jordan one ever made all original in the box every colorway ever made and that started what i i didn't realize what i was doing but it started my i guess you could call it an obsession i didn't realize you know where the sneaker game would be today yeah but uh it was more about the culture. It was just about the kicks. And I really enjoyed like being part of that culture and getting on buses and going to Supreme and waiting in line for sneakers. And 
um, and I just kept collecting and collecting and collecting. And people were collecting over, you know, they used to collect stamps in the old days, right? Uh, pe people collect <clears throat> trading uh, sports cards and things of that nature. People collect all kinds of video games now. They're all different kinds of things people collect. It's just a generation, generation is always something different. That's right. So, and I mean, I don't think that it was such an infantile stage. I don't think that, I think that the, the manufacturers, you know, um, Adidas and Nike and Reebok and, and Converse and everybody that was out there realized the amount of revenue they could drive through sneakers. But I don't think as a culture, we would realize until now the reseller options for sneakers. So for me, it was just like a hobby and it was more about going co and correct. I mean, the internet didn't exist in the eighties. So there wasn't any real option except for class on newspapers to go resell, resell a collector's yeah. item sneakers. But now, now the I mean, whole world after 25 years or 30, you know, 30 years now, right. The worldwide web came out in 94, 30 years of, of the internet. You can actually no problems uh, reselling, legitimate items on the internet go ahead yeah i mean we had to wait in line for sneakers you know you had to wait outside of Foot Locker. you had to wait outside of uh alexander's you and had to this, wait outside this of was Center happening in soho new york city yes yeah, 10 years ago when I, I used to work on the construction of a luxury residential building and across the street was this sneaker thing and people would get, get in line waiting for the next release of something it was it was it so they were still doing in 2015, what you were doing in 1987. That's right. It was just different. You know, I mean, now you have 10 different buying operating programs. These kids are 16 years old. They're in school while the, you know, computers buying sneakers for them. So, I mean, thank God for technology, right? It moved things in a yeah, good so, direction. So, so for the audience, what happened to your sneaker collection? So I, um, I mean, it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew probably to about, 15 sold probably about 10 years ago um yep. to one collector for a lot of money we'll wow. just put it like that i mean you know when nike you, seriously that, yeah you know it's uh and and it's also put me around other individuals that were doing the same thing now my sneaker collection my habit i mean i still have it i think <laughs> you know, I just sold a couple pairs of sneakers to my buddy Seth that uh, has his own resale business. But I didn't really pursue the resale business. I, you know, sold the sneakers to one collector who opened up his own business because now what kids are doing is they're buying the sneakers. If you can get a, a, a quick strike release on a, on, and I, I won't just talk about Nike, we, you know, any brand that's out there, um, if you're able to even get it, um, it, it becomes a resale value. The markup, the margins are so good that kids are able to make a living off of reselling sneakers. Wow. And um, yeah, it's, you know, and make a lot of money. And um, because once the sneakers are gone and let, until they, you know, decide that they're going to, you know, reprint the sneaker, so to speak, they're, uh, well, they become the, collectibles. Right, the club because ninety, a, a big portion of the population, like myself, buy sneakers to wear them to to run in the ground, and like eventually they're beaten up. Right, so that's right. always about whether you're collecting even antique cars. Is always what's the condition of the actual item. Right, at the end of the day, 
Yeah. I think I wore my sneakers a little bit different. You know I mean? I had to make sure, like, I kind of tiptoed and made sure they were always clean because in the back of my head, I was like, this is like a piece of art. They're going to be worth something. And, uh, good for you. You know, that, uh, um, um, that insight, I was, I was right, you know? So, um, so, so yeah. So, so, I mean, it was a much bigger thing, though, James. You know what I mean? Like, to me, yeah. I didn't, I didn't really, realize and i don't think a lot of the kids realize what where the game would be today i think for me it just taught me that like it really wasn't about like where you came from how much you had who your parents were you know whether or not you lived in you know venice park or you you know wherever you grew up in atlantic city um you know it didn't matter didn't matter where you came from. The minute that we showed up in Alexander's, it was about the sneaker and the culture and unifying. So it taught me at a very young age that, like, you know, we all come from different walks of life. We all, you know, look different. We all talk different. We all have different things that we're interested in. But really, you know, when you break it all down, there's so much similarity, you know, than there are differences. And I'm really grateful for that part of my life, you know, with sneakers. Yeah, for sure. So, so we got about 15 minutes in the show. I want to talk about Atlantic City. I want to talk about Atlantic City before the casinos came, and then what 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 happened? Kind of when the casinos came into town, like you said, they the money wasn't going back into the city itself. They didn't really they left the city poor, pretty much, or or certain parts of the city poor. But talk about Atlantic City, what it meant for your father. I mean, Atlantic City was the world's playground pre-casinos, you know? Um, so for my father, it was his lineage, you know? He built a very successful business. Um, you know, Rosengarden Ginsburg was one of them, the furniture store. Um, and that was like pre Ikea and pre restoration hardware. Actually the furniture was handmade back then. Yeah, and, it was. Uh, and there's still craftsmen that are doing it. And, you know, um, God bless them, you know, but like my father sold furniture to the, it was only him and the Kensingtons and, uh, the oldest restaurant in Atlantic city is Doc's Oyster house. So actually they ended up buying the furniture store, which was from, um, where their parking lot, is to florida avenue and uh yeah so you know pre pre the the casinos um i think that um I, let me try to figure out how to explain this the best um when i talked earlier about the the crda funding and the allocation of the tax dollars like i don't want to get into too much politics but you know I don't see that the dollars were ever put back into Atlantic City. Now, the right. casinos came to Atlantic City and they opened up opportunity to give people jobs that weren't there. So that was a really good thing. And then they were also building on beachfront real estate, which when you looked at the history of casino gaming at that time, there was no casinos that were on the beach. OK, you had Vegas and you had Atlantic City. And they had a 35-year head start. And, I mean, when I look at it now, James, I think that, like, if a point or two points of that money in that in that 
law had to be allocated back to Atlantic City and not to the state. But I understand, you know, maybe the state is the one to put the, the laws in place. So the money had to go back to, to wherever it went. Maybe it's the, you know, where the taxpayers are. Yeah, no, you know, right. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's where, maybe yeah, it's where educational every, demographic. Every state and city have an economic development program. It just seems like Atlantic City was kind of ignored. Yeah, I, I don't know, you know, and as a kid, you know, to me, it was fascinating. You know, I remember, um, you know, my father taking me to the opening of resorts, you know, and I remember, you know, the I, I remember overhearing conversation of that this also could be a time that we want to look to maybe not be in business in Atlantic City. And to me today, if if it was done properly from the beginning, that boardwalk should be paved in gold. Oh, I agree with you. It should be paved in gold. And like, I don't want to like dump on a place that I love, you know, because I think that it's done a lot of good for people there. It's raised a lot of families. You know, a lot of kids were able to go to college because of what the casinos did. But I don't really think that they thought about their best interests and their best needs. Well, all right. So let me put this in context for the people. There's an opposite effect in the country of Norway. So Norway was a very poor country uh, probably 70, 80 years ago. Sweden was very, very, very successful with Swedish steel. Well, then I flipped around when, when Norway discovered oil offshore in the late 1960s. My Both sides of my family in Norway, you know, for full disclosure, are involved in the offshore industry, have been for more than, you know, 50, 60 years. So I'm, I'm well aware. But what the Norwegian government, they set, they set up a part of the government to get all of this incredible tax revenue from their pot of gold, the, the black gold, the oil and gas. And, and what do they what do they end up doing with it? Well, they wasted money for the first 20 years. They, they built built little tunnels to nowhere. So this is socialism. This is the opposite of Atlantic City. So they, they built tunnels to nowhere. They really didn't rebuild the schools. They, they ignored a lot of things. And they did all these pet projects uh, nationwide in, in Norway at the time. And eventually they realized we're also wasting the money when they could have be better served future generations. So eventually, by the late 90s, they eventually started investing and invested all the money outside of Norway, right, into corporations, uh, markets, real estate, everything. So Nor Nor Norwegian children would have a future. And that is actually what took place there. So I just want to put that out there. So the entire country, Norway, sort of behaved like Atlantic City in a way, or the state of New Jersey, in the sense that they didn't put the money in the beginning in the right places. Go on, Bishop. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a couple things to have that are hard to have conversations about, right? Politics and religion. Yeah, you know, for a reason. There, for a reason, right? And, um, you know, it's not, my story is not to challenge what Atlantic City did or didn't do. You know what I mean? I just yep. see that, uh, you know, um, I at one point when I worked in Atlantic City, um, you know, for the Sheriff's Department, I think one out of every two, one out of every 10 to 12 people lived a hundred and I think more of that understanding came from working for Atlantic Care Behavioral Health and their Mental Health Intensive Outpatient Program. Um, you know, there was 
there was a lot of multi-layered generational welfare going on coupled with severe persistent mental illness. Yeah. And they dumped a lot of resources into Atlantic City for the indigent population. And um, but I'm not sure besides what they offered a job, did they look to try to make the situation better? And I think the state, I think anybody could look at gentrification and the fact that these casinos were making millions and millions of dollars a year and done a better job, maybe, to put Atlantic City in a different place. You know, Atlantic City is never going to die. It's never going to die. It's like a cockroach. You can't kill a cockroach. You know what I mean? And it's like, I look yeah, it's, at. It's really still the place to go. I know there's indie casinos up in Connecticut, right? There's New York State now, New York City. They got casinos, right? And even Eastern Pennsylvania has the same thing. So they've all realized, wow, you know, Atlantic City and New Jersey made a lot of money in the last, you know, 50 years. So, so now they've kind of all gotten the game in the last 15, 20 years. That's right. So, you know, I mean, when I think about Atlantic City pre-casinos, I think about like my dad working very, very hard to be able to afford to move out of Atlantic City, um, to still have the business in Atlantic City, to get out at the right time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was also the place that, you know, I, I went to surf, you know, leaving Margate Quincy Avenue and getting in the car for the first time to go surf, surf States Avenue with like the guys that I really looked up to was like a terrifying experience. It was like interviewing for like the craziest job you could possibly imagine. So I, there's, there's way more stories that are fun than the politics of Atlantic city and, you know, it's yeah, this, this, this shaped your life. Eventually you went into different careers, which we'll discuss in the next show. One being law enforcement. Correct. You want to talk, want to talk a little bit about that in the next five minutes? Go ahead. So I, um, I mean, the, the story is long, James, you know, how I got there, but um, prior to my law enforcement career, I worked, um, I worked at Sherman Hospital as a cell process technician um, for the operating room. And then I went to Atlanta Care Behavioral Health to work in their mental health intensive outpatient program. And prior to that, you had the Division of Addiction Services and you had the Mental Health Association and they operated separately. They weren't under one umbrella, MICA, so to speak, mental illness, chemical addiction, which when anybody goes into treatment now, they most are dual diagnosed facilities. Um, sometimes the mental illness, the access one is is larger. But I um, so I went to to work for Atlantic Care and at that time, they didn't have a mental health intensive outpatient program. It was a grant funded program. And they they had outpatient services and then they had partial care services, which were, you know, severe persistent mental illness, the most of the major diagnosis. And then they had the outpatient services, but they never had a bridge between partial care and outpatient. So we took this grant fund. There was about five of us that were on the initial team and we took it from the state operating in the red and pushed it into the green. And I think at that time there might've been one other program in North Jersey that had started to prove that this, you know, mental this MICA program was working in the program. It offered 
you know, eight hours of, um, you had to attend about eight hours of group therapy a week. With the, within the eight weeks, there were uh, med monitoring, individual psych evaluations, um, individual therapy with case management, and a Jewish family service component in it, which, you know, they do God's work. They deal with, you know, you know some, some challenging cases. Yeah, and, um, you know, so I was given a caseload, and I realized early that, um, you know, the answer to a lot of people's problems is yeah if they need medication to homeostasis you know to have their homeostasis balanced um you know i mean schizophrenia um with auditory commands major depressive disorders things that like this country is focusing on now okay law enforcement is looking at now um i was able to to get in and and really be part of and realize that if you can listen to people and you can talk to people that that's the first line of defense it really is you know yeah and and we're and, and we're in a culture today with this uh transgenderism right which is like in my opinion gender mutilation why are kids getting their if you're if you're a female getting your breast cut off at an early age and men the other 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 way. It's just and all of these chem the puberty blockers, all of these chemicals are getting, they're creating a whole new, like, I don't know what the subculture of something. And it's going to have negative outcomes when these kids grow into young adults and realize their lives have been pretty much destroyed as the original gender. But I, you know, that we're in a new new uncharted territory in that respect. Yeah, we're in a new uncharted territory with what we're doing right now. You know, I mean, yep. the new DSM manual, I mean, has a subsection for technology addiction. You know, that didn't exist years that's, ago. You know, that, we'll, we'll talk on that at the, at the beginning of the next show, the tech, the DSM. Because I'm familiar with that because they changed the definition in 2008 or nine from DSM-4 to DSM-5. And why? Because of autism, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the vaccines and autism, no, they're not related. Yeah, they're related. The, you know, the, the vaccines have caused, have caused a polio outbreak, right? Vaccines have, have spread disease. Vaccines have created all kinds of what people believe now, MS, all kinds of food allergies. So we're, we're also in a different paradigm that way. It's not just the COVID bioweapons that are, that are damaging people. All vaccines on the schedules now need to be examined because none of them are safe, none of them are effective, and they're actually doing more harm than good. You got a minute to wrap up this particular segment. We'll see you next week on the next episode of Bishop. So, so the audience, why am I doing this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm taking a Joe Rogan approach. This is slowing down the conversation so we can dive deep into certain segments. And this is, uh, you know, Bishop's story is, when he gets into it deeper next week, is really going to be universal you will see go ahead bishop got a minute all right let me wrap this up so you asked me the question was you know do i want to touch on on my law enforcement career um i do james you know i mean i think it's a big learning curve for me and i think that how i entered into law enforcement and my path during it and my exit are the exit's not as graceful as the entrance and what had happened and the accomplishments that I made yep. in the, you know, what I say short amount of time doing what I did. But uh, for me, I had wanted to see if I 
could get hired. That was my initial situation in my entry to law enforcement. I didn't realize what I had been doing from the time that I was a kid, you know, leading up to what I just talked about with mental health intensive outpatient program would, would make me, you know, a great officer would make me have the ability that the, not only the foundation and the ability to protect myself with my hands, but more importantly with my words and what you and I are doing now, because you could put everything around your waist, stack it in your vest. You know what I mean? And if you can't do this, then it's probably not the job for you. And like the media and the world and this ability to do what we're doing over the phone and everybody pulling out a camera, it makes it extremely hard for these guys that are still out there working to do their jobs. And like, it has to be textbook because if it's not textbook, James, then there's a guy that's the defense attorney that went to Harvard, tears it all apart. So for me, um, I was very proud of taking the civil service test scoring how I scored. And that was my entrance to, you know, what we'll talk about later in the show. Right. And we'll talk about body cameras and their use. Very important. We'll see you next week, Bishop. Thank you very much for your time. God bless you. God bless you.